Good morning, Grace. Uh, my name is Rob Price. Uh, my wife, Mindy, and I are members here at Grace, uh, and it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been uh, preaching our way through the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we arrive at a wild passage, uh, Luke 21, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, it's a long passage, most of the chapter, and parts of the passage, not all of it, but some of it is kind of confusing. So we are going to read the whole thing, but before we do, let me make three comments to kind of get us ready for what we're going to read. So uh, three-point pre-sermon sermon. Uh, so first, it's a long passage from verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter. It's uh, like a single sermon of Jesus. Over 30 verses of doom and destruction. <laughs> By the way, that's what we're talking about this morning, doom and destruction. So we didn't want to break this passage down into shorter passages and then spend the next five weeks on doom and destruction, yeah? Uh, and besides, the passage is all interwoven, so it's kind of hard to break down into smaller chunks. So we're going to do it all at once, that's good. And then next week in Luke 22, we can move on to more cheerful matters, the plot to kill Jesus. Second, in some ways this is a confusing passage. It's a hazy view of a far horizon. It begins with a question, when is this stuff going to happen? But Jesus doesn't give a simple answer. He gives a five-part sort of answer. Here's how I think we should read the five parts of Jesus' answer. So in parts one and five of Jesus' answer, so the beginning and the end of our passage, Jesus is talking generally about things that characterize the experience of Christianity across the centuries. Then, in parts 2 and 4 of the sermon, Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. So, roughly 40 years after Jesus' resurrection, in the year A.D. 70, Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed by the Romans. Then, the third part of his sermon, Jesus is talking about the second coming. Okay, so from our point in history, Jesus starts and ends with the present, what's generally true right now for us. Then he talks about what for us is in the distant past, the fall of Jerusalem. And then he talks about what is still future, the second coming, right? And it can be a little, a little dizzying to kind of keep our bearings as we move through his teaching. It's a long passage. It's a confusing passage. Third, it's a perfect passage. Jesus was not unaware of the effect that his words would have on us. He planned it this way. He could have made it shorter. He could have made it clearer. But Jesus is the wisest of teachers. He knows that for us on this topic, clearer knowledge would not be better. What Jesus has told us, in the way that he's told it, is exactly what we need. Jesus is a teacher we can trust. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we'll read. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your word. It is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so, Father, as we come to your word, please give us understanding that we may live. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Luke 21, beginning at verse 5. 
And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Okay, sermon part one, what's generally true. And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Okay, sermon part two, Jerusalem. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Sermon part three, second coming. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Sermon part four, back to Jerusalem. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Sermon part five, back to what's generally true. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, 
praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Can you imagine sitting there in Jerusalem, like in the temple, in the presence of Jesus himself, listening to him teach? <laughs> no wonder all the people uh, were coming to hear him. And even all these centuries later, we've come to this building this morning to hear from Jesus. Here's how I'd like to work through uh, this passage. So we're going to start in the middle of Jesus' sermon with his second coming. And then we're going to look on either side to the fall of Jerusalem. And last, we'll talk about what's generally true in the experience of Christianity. Okay, so second coming in the future, fall of Jerusalem in the past, and the experience of Christianity in the present. Uh, to start, I have some disappointing news. I am not going to calculate for you the date of the second coming. Aww. <laughs> Good, right? As you know, many people have tried. <clears throat> here's, here's a typical example. Um, at the end of the first millennium, there were lots of folks who were going to party like it's 999. Uh, January 1st of the year 1000, it came and went. Naturally, they revised their predictions to the year 1033. A thousand years not from Jesus' birth, but from his resurrection. I think you know what happened. Nothing, right? <laughs> that date also came and went. <clears throat> In living memory, it was the late great planet Earth. Chernobyl means wormwood. Hmm. It was the end of the world as we know it. Uh, we didn't want to get left behind. <laughs> uh, Y2K, anyone? <laughs> there's, a, there's a Wikipedia page uh, listing people across the centuries who have claimed to be Jesus. And there are other pages listing hundreds of failed apocalyptic predictions, uh, often failed, revised, and refailed. Again, across the centuries. <laughs> now, in our 2023 hindsight, lots of these predictions seem pretty silly. Right? They're, they're easy to laugh at. That's why people keep making apocalypse jokes like there's no tomorrow. People don't even know what the word apocalypse means. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. All these false predictions, please note, Jesus predicted them. He said, many will come in my name saying, I am he. Yep. And the time is at hand. Yes, they have. What does Jesus tell us? Don't go after them. Like, don't be led astray by them. Friends, the second coming is not going to slip by us unnoticed. You won't miss it. Jesus said back in chapter 17, for as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You'll notice. And what exactly will we notice? What will the second coming involve? Take a look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus kind of works through four things. There will be signs in first sun and moon and stars. And second, on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of, third, the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming forth on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Uh, This is a strange description. What Jesus is doing here is evoking Old Testament ways of talking about future judgment. Uh, In the Old Testament book of the prophet Haggai, the Lord says, yet once more, in a little while, here they are, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, as uh, residents of Southern California, we know what happens when the earth is shaken. (laughs) Destruction, right? Uh, Folks in Japan know what happens when the sea is shaken. That the powers of the heavens are also shaken. It's not, I don't think, that God's going to like flick the sun, moon, and stars out of the sky. Um, In the Bible, the heavens, or rather the powers of the heavens, these are sometimes a symbol of spiritual demonic forces as they twist and ruin human life on earth. So God shaking the powers of the heavens is apocalyptic imagery for God punishing evil in the spiritual realms. But the shaking of the powers of the heavens, it's not just the punishment of demonic forces, but, praise God, also their total destruction. When the prophet says, yet once more, that indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, as the letter to the Hebrews later explains. Therefore, he continues, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God is going to completely remove the demonic forces that bring ruin on Christian life. From heaven to earth, from sea to land, there's going to be a total comprehensive judgment on wickedness. None of it will escape. Praise be to God. And then, verse 27, we will see the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory. Okay, coming, but coming to do what? Jesus doesn't explain here because he's referring to some famous passage in the Old Testament that explains what he's coming to do. Daniel 7, to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is coming to set up his perfect kingdom. It will last forever. It will never be shaken. As we confess in the Nicene Creed, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So the second coming is the centerpiece of Jesus' sermon. Everything else is organized around it, and it's also one of the centerpieces of Christian theology. Satan does not want us to have good theology. He doesn't want us looking forward to Jesus' perfect kingdom. So here are two little tricks that Satan plays on us. First, Satan tries to get us to think that everything the Bible says about the future is uncertain. You know, we can't say when Jesus is coming back, so maybe we can't even say if he's coming back. It's hard to be dogmatic about raptures and Armageddons and antichrists, so why be dogmatic about the resurrection? No, (laughs) right? Some of what the Bible says about the future is perfectly clear and totally certain. Jesus will return we will rise, and he will judge the living and the dead. Friends, don't abandon what's clear and certain because there's lots of other stuff that isn't. Don't be 100% agnostic because we're 50% ignorant. 
Here's another trick Satan likes to play on us. Satan likes to take something good that we're hoping for and make us mistake it for Jesus' perfect kingdom. And then, when this good thing arrives, it's maybe good, but it's not perfect. And so we're a little disappointed. And then we begin associating disappointment with Jesus' perfect kingdom. So, like this, we think, oh, when the holiday is finally here, then <laughs> life will be perfect. Right? Oh, when I finally get that job or that promotion. When at last I find a spouse. Uh, when the little guy finally moves out of diapers. <laughs> right? Or when the big guy finally moves out of the house. Right? When the cancer is gone. When the lockdowns end. Or for me, when the semester ends, oh, I tell you, I am going to stride into paradise through open gates. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love teaching, it's just a lot of work. We set ultimate hope on less than ultimate things. Now, this, this actually seems kind of what's going on at the beginning of our passage. Our passage begins with some people admiring the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, but their admiration was probably a little too close to worship you know, as if they were looking at God's throne room in heaven rather than just a copy and shadow of the real thing. So Jesus has to dial back their expectations. Uh, note, he doesn't say, stop admiring the temple. He says, guys, you do realize this thing's not eternal, right? They needed to see that though the temple is really cool, it's not ultimately cool. The solution to our cycle of disappointment is not to stop hoping it's to put the right hope in the right place. It's right to hope for good things, to look forward to them, to rejoice and give thanks when the Lord gives them to us. But we shouldn't put ultimate hope in them. And when we experience the limitations of the many good things that we hope for in this life, when they don't completely satisfy us, that just shows we were made for another world, as C.S. Lewis says. Right? That's the moment when good things don't quite satisfy us. That's the moment to hope all the more for Jesus' perfect kingdom. Everything that we're constantly hoping for in the vacation, the new job, the move, we'll get everything and more, infinitely more, when Jesus returns. And while Luke doesn't give much detail here about the second coming, elsewhere in Scripture we're told by Paul, for example, that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the second coming, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." In Matthew, Jesus says that at the second coming, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to another. Job says of the second coming, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And in the very last page of the Bible, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And we reply, amen. 
come, Lord Jesus. Friends, our blessed hope is in the return of Jesus. Yes, the road is hard, but we will see Jesus at the end. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So the return of Jesus, the second coming, that's the middle of Jesus' sermon. Now we're going to look at what's on either side of that, where he talks about the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, It's a little confusing, but also fascinating that Jesus can shift back and forth like this between events that are like 2,000 years apart. Uh, Notice that I said, like. These events are like 2,000 years apart. If they were exactly 2,000 years apart, and if Jerusalem falls in A.D. 70, then clearly the second coming will be in the year... Mm-mm-mm. Don't even go there. And unspecified and unspecifiable numbers of centuries uh, separate these events. Okay, but the people who were listening to Jesus as he taught in the temple, they could be forgiven if they thought these were the same event. Right? Not only does Jesus talk about them together, he also describes them in similar terms. Like for both events, it's terror and destruction, distress on the earth, conflict among nations. Now, it's easier from our perspective in history to see that these are actually distinct events. We're told, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then verse 32, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So there must have been lots of people who were living there in Jerusalem right then as Jesus was talking in the temple. They were still alive some 40 years later when Jerusalem fell. But the second coming still hasn't happened. Like, we didn't miss it. Now, Jesus himself knew that these were separate events, and he also knew that once the fall of Jerusalem had happened and the second coming had not happened, people would start to get nervous, right? Did we miss the second coming? Did Jesus wrongly think he was coming back in 40 years? Did Jesus miss the second coming? (laughs) The vagueness of prophecy is unsettling. We want details that it just refuses to yield. So, verse 33, Jesus reassures us. He makes an astounding claim. Really, he makes a supreme claim. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Friends, do you realize that a mere human cannot talk like that? We can't add a single hour to our span of life. Only God can speak an abiding word. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see, Jesus knew that we'd suspect maybe his words had passed away. But Jesus knows a thing or two about words, and he chooses his words very carefully. So why does Jesus connect the fall of Jerusalem and the second coming? Why does he speak of them together in the same breath, as it were? We'll take a look at verse 24. Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Gentiles will dominate Jerusalem during a period that Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles. Okay, what's going on? Well, Jesus is talking about a turning point in history. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, from Father Abraham all the way down to Jesus, that's what we might call the times of the Jews. 
during the times of the Jews, God's work, His saving work, was focused on the people of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that no Gentiles got saved in that era. It means that God was mostly busy with the Jews. The New Testament, the New Covenant, from Jesus all the way to us, this is the times of the Gentiles. During the times of the Gentiles, God's saving work is focused mostly on us Gentiles. That doesn't mean that no Jews are being saved today. It means that God's mostly busy with us Gentiles. So, the times of the Jews and the times of the Gentiles, Old Covenant and New Covenant, these are two stages or eras of God's saving work in this world. And God's going to bring both of them to similar conclusions. Right? When the times of the Jews were fulfilled, God brought judgment on Jerusalem. Days of vengeance, they're called, because the Jews had rejected Jesus. And when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, God will bring judgment on the whole earth because of its rejection of Jesus. Jesus puts these two events together because the fall of Jerusalem anticipates the judgment at his second coming. And just because unbelieving Gentiles escaped the fall of Jerusalem does not mean that they've escaped God's judgment entirely. As God treats the Jews, so he will treat the Gentiles. The horror of the desolation of Jerusalem is a fearful foretaste of the judgment to come. Now, you might be inclined to breathe a sigh of relief at this point. We're not living during these two great apocalyptic catastrophes, but between them. You know, too bad for our kids or grandkids or whoever's alive in 2070. <laughs> it's hard to resist, isn't it? You know, stinks to be them, but for us, hey, we're going to have peace in our time. But you've probably noticed that Jesus is not preaching this particular sermon to set us at ease. All right, so he begins and ends his sermon, here's part three, talking about the experience of Christianity across the centuries. And as Jesus describes it here, it's bleak. Maybe you notice that it sounds a lot like the madness before the second coming. Verses uh, 10 and 11. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Isn't it nice that this medieval word pestilences has a fresh vividness after COVID? <laughs> now we all know what a plague is. <laughs> But there's more than just the cosmic chaos. It gets worse and closer to home. Verse 12, there's persecution. Verse 16, in our most intimate relationships, betrayal. Verse 17, being hated simply for being a Christian. Friends, this is what sharing in Christ's sufferings may involve. It almost makes the second coming look comfortable. Uh, Saturday a week ago, how many were there to celebrate Robert and Chloe's wedding? Yeah? Good stuff. Uh, Rob Lister officiated, and in his charge to the oh-so-cute couple, he mentioned at one point the hard half of the marriage vows. For worse, for poorer, in sickness. Now, Rob wasn't trying to balance out the joy of the occasion by adding a dash of gloom, right? 
the hard half of the vows is there to get them ready to pass the tests of marriage, to sustain their faithfulness through the difficulties of life. You see, Rob was doing just like Jesus does here. Jesus is not at all opposed to our finding joy in his many good gifts to us in this life. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But what Jesus really wants us to be able to rejoice in is standing faithful at the end. And so he gets us ready for tough times ahead. As Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The hard stuff of marriage is not hidden in the fine print. It's right there in the wedding vows. Likewise, the hard stuff of Christian discipleship is not hidden in the fine print. It's uncomfortably clear in the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament. Persecution and betrayal and hatred, that's what we've signed up for. So what should life look like between the fall of Jerusalem and the second coming? Uh, let me give you two tasks and two assurances. Take a look at verse 36. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So two tasks, stay awake and pray. So first, we are to stay awake. Now, I've been scolding people for predicting the date of the second coming, but part of staying awake is recognizing that the crazy stuff could start at any moment. Right? There's a reason why Jesus described the general experience of Christianity across the centuries in ways that sound a lot like the second coming. Jesus is not confused he wants Christians, he wants us, Christians across the centuries to see the madness of their day and think, wow, it could be soon. Lord, please make it soon. Right? Jesus wants us to live in expectation. And even if the Lord tarry, even if it's a long time before Jesus returns, we will still feel, see him and face him in judgment someday. Staying awake is living right now as we will want to have lived when we finally see Jesus. So the question for us is, what kind of life do we want to look back on? What kind of life do we want to present to Jesus? What would it look like as the particular people we are, in the particular circumstances that we're in, what would it look like for us to suffer well, to sacrifice well, to work well, to love family well, to love friends well, to love strangers well, to love enemies well. You know, our culture wants total control over the shape of human life. But so much of life is just given to us. We don't get to pick our parents. We don't get to pick our brothers and sisters, our culture, our sex. These are just some of the, the minas, the talents, the tools and tasks that God has just given us. Surely, friends, 
Surely the life we want to present to Jesus involves leaning in to what we've already been given. You know, grow where you're planted. Second, we are also to pray for strength to escape. Now, that doesn't mean asking never to face hard times. It means asking that we'll have strength to face the hard times and come through them faithful. Persecution and betrayal and hatred may not be common in our experience right now, but they certainly are in the experience of our brothers and sisters globally. And they may become more common in our experience in the future. And so as we live well, and as we pray in anticipation of hard times ahead, while everyone else is fainting with fear and with foreboding, our job is not to slouch and sulk, but to straighten up and raise our heads in confident expectation. And you think, in light of all the terrifying things that Jesus says are coming, how is confidence even possible? So notice, in closing, uh, two remarkable assurances that Jesus gives us. Assurance number one, this is verse 15. When persecutors demand that we explain this whole Jesus thing, we don't even have to plan out what we're going to say. Jesus says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, that doesn't mean that our persecutors are all just going to repent and get saved, right? They may go on their merry way persecuting Christians. But even if our terrified response to their interrogations, are you a Christian, is simply a tiny nod. Jesus will be watching from heaven, and he'll say, ah, look at that. Did you see? Have you considered my servant, for instance, Sonny Massey, who, by the way, did more than nod. Ask him about it. If persecution comes, when persecution comes, friends, Jesus will give us the strength to stand and the words to say. Assurance number two, and this one also is wild, verses 16 to 18. Jesus says, <clears throat> some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. <laughs> we might think, um, wait, Jesus, which one is it? I mean, that's great if not a hair of my head's going to perish, but if I'm going to be put to death, like, I'm not feeling the assurance thing. Okay, question for you. Was Jesus put to death? Hmm. Did a hair of his head perish? No. He rose. The assurance here is not that we will never die, but that when we die, in whatever circumstances we die, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him and bring us into his presence. Friends, whatever violence we face for the sake of his name, we are safe in the hands of Jesus. In fact, in the hands of Jesus, we are invincible, even if they kill us. We might be honored with martyrdom, with the privilege of being killed because we bear witness to Jesus. And while that's unlikely today in America, to the number of the noble army of martyrs, globally, the Lord is adding daily. And we don't know how things may change here. Friends, if persecution comes, when persecution comes, we may suffer great loss, we may even die, but Jesus will restore it all and more 
in the resurrection. Friends, our redemption is drawing near. What kind of life do we want to present to Jesus? Obviously, that'll take some work, but one of the things that God is doing right now, as Paul explains, is helping us to live that very life. He is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, especially as we face tough times, let's look for strength to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus will give us the strength and joy we need to live well and to endure. And even though our redemption is drawing near, it's not here yet. And so the offer of redemption still stands. No one is excluded from the salvation that Jesus offers. That's why Jesus was preaching to all the people in the temple. That's why Jesus later charged the apostles in Peter's words to preach to the people, that's the gospel, the good news, and to testify that he it is who has been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And that's why Jesus charges us with making disciples of all nations until the end of the age. So, grace, as Paul wrote in perhaps the last letter before he died, may the Lord rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.